Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. People can change anything they want to. And that means everything in the world. Show me any country and there'll be people in it. It's time to take the humanity back into the center of the ring and follow that for a time. You know, think on that. Without people, you're nothing. Without people, you're nothing. Stoke the fire. I'm excited to have you on because uh, there's a lot of, I mean, our friendship, you know, passing and on tour mm-hmm. and there's a lot of gaps and stuff. I've read your book as well and I loved it. Um, but I'm super curious is this, cause I observed you before I knew you, obviously I knew with the band, I saw you in documentaries and I did see a little bit of your, your crazy side when you were not, uh, sober. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and, Most uh, people in our scene did. Yeah. Long enough. So I'm, I'm, my curiosity is, is within this, um, just from your own words, what, what was that journey like and what was there a particular incident or a what was your turning point from going to, you know, being that guy to realizing that this is no longer going to work for me? Was there? We should probably, well, I mean, for those who don't know, uh, what Jesse's referring to is being from that, being that guy just means being an insane drunken lunatic. Um, you know, basically I drank, uh, and, and did other assorted dry goods, uh, peripheral substances as it were, for about 22 years, uh, pretty well known for that. Um, and, you know, there's nothing wrong with drinking alcohol if uh, it doesn't make you uh, worry and or piss off every of, every single person of significance in your life. That's what drinking alcohol did for me. So um, it, it didn't work for me. Um, and you know, I tried to stop drinking for about four years. I've been sober, uh, over 10 years now. No, no, no drinks, no drugs, nothing stronger than coffee or Tylenol. Um, and some, and nicotine, you know, regrettably, I I stopped cigarettes. I still use the the stupid e-cigarettes, but I even, I I drink non-alcoholic beer. Um, that's not a recommended solution for everyone, but I, I happen to enjoy it. And in fact, I have one right here. Hey. My beer that I made for Brewdog. There you uh, go. Hell yeah. Scottish company. Um, so I, you know, I'm kind of a poser now. But the, <laughs> the, the there was there was no one real like defining moment. Like I didn't get arrested. I didn't wreck my car. I didn't get divorced. I wasn't homeless. You know, I didn't get beat up. I didn't hurt myself. I didn't wind up in the mental hospital and suddenly get sober. All that shit happened, right? All of that happened, but it didn't make me get sober. Mm. I just drank through that. You know, I, I just powered through it because it was like, there was a foe at that point. There was something I could blame, you know, if I, if I got hurt or whatever, um, 
you know, like, I could be like, oh, this hurts. I need a drink to deal with it. Or if a girl broke up with me, I'd be like, a drink at it. You know what I mean? A drink at her. So like when I got sober and I got sober in Australia on tour uh, in Brisbane, Australia, uh, in October of 2010, when I decided to really finally quit drinking, because I tried off and on for four years, um, half-assed tried by by trying i mean like i would not drink for three or four months but at the same time i'd be eating as many opiate pain pills as i could get just as like a placeholder until i could get back to my one true love which is booze um i enjoy drugs but booze is my one true love and, and alcohol is of course a drug but what what happened for me finally is is that i was on tour we were on tour with metallica um which is pretty much the best gig you can get as a metal band. That's they're the biggest metal band in the world. There's no doubt about it. Um, the tour we were in Australia, Jesse, you've been to Australia, you know how incredible that is. You know, uh, it's one of my favorite places to go to. It's just like so rad. Um, I had money in my bank account, uh, my band, I, and I actually had learned how to do my job to, to control my drinking enough to where I wasn't sloppy on stage or really. I mean, I wasn't as good as I am sober, but I wasn't like falling off the stage, which I've done before. You know, I, I learned how to control it. And we were in Brisbane on tour of Metallica, and uh, I woke up one morning after drinking the night before, and I drank a whole lot the night before. But, and I'm sure I was intoxicated, but I did not get the mental relief that drinking provided me, which was it turned this switch off on this overactive brain of mine, um, which in untreated alcoholism, that overactive brain is constantly saying negative things, it's saying negative things about the world around me. It's saying negative things about the people around me. Uh, and it's most importantly, it's saying negative things about me. You know, it's telling me you are a piece of shit. So in, in order to shut that off, paradoxically, I use the thing which makes it even worse, mm. which is drinking, you know, and it will shut it down at least for an hour or two. Um, and then my last night of drinking, I went out and drank an immense, immense amount of alcohol with some friends of mine there. And I, it never shut off the voice. Like it, it was just like, you're miserable, dude, you're miserable. Um, so I woke up the next morning and I walked out on my hotel balcony, which is on, I believe it's Queen street is the main street in Brisbane. There's like an outdoor sort of shopping mall with cool restaurants. The botanical gardens are down at the end of the street. Uh, and there's, there's like weird animals in there and beautiful plants. Uh, one of my favorite bookstores in the world was across the street. They've moved now. Um, but I, I loved going to this bookstore. It's such a well-curated selection of bookstores. Great restaurants. I woke up. It was a beautiful day. I'm in Australia. I walk out on my hotel balcony and I'm like, I see all this cool food. I see this bookstore I love directly across the street. I see the botanical gardens right there with like weird Australian animals and shit in it. And I'm like, I should feel awesome. I'm in an awesome place right now, but I feel utterly, utterly empty. 
just completely empty. Not like I didn't feel like I wanted to kill myself, I don't guess. Um, but I, I did not feel like doing anything, even existing. You know, I was like, I don't feel like breathing right now. I could just stop. It'd be okay. You know, I, I could just stop right here, right now. Boom, no more Randy. And I realized, and I looked across on my, on my hotel balcony, I looked at um, this pile of, uh, of empty bottles, of beer bottles that I had drank the night before. And even in my drunken mess, I, I get kind of OCD, you know? So there was like, I had very neatly stacked these beer bottles on this table, very neatly with all the labels pointed the same way, you know, and they're like very even and space, like in a neat little triangle thing, very just trippy, weird shit. And I looked at these empty beer bottles and I thought, you know what? That's a metaphor for my life right now. Like everything on the outside looks perfectly orderly. Everything is set up. It's in a line. The labels are facing out. It's, it's looking how it should. Uh, but those are empty containers for alcohol. And that is what I had become just wow. a container for alcohol. And even though they're even, even neatly set up kind of like bowling pins, you know, when you go bowling, when they're set up, they're perfectly set up, perfectly arranged. All it would take is just one little pink and all those bottles fall and break. And that was me, dude. You know, that was my life. Um, everything on the outside, dude, I was on tour with fucking Metallica, bro. It doesn't get any better than that to be in a metal band it, it, on the outside. It looked great, you know? Um, but in reality it's just waiting to fall. So I was just like, I felt this emptiness and I saw those bottles and I was like, I have got to stop. I don't know if it's going to help me or fix me or whatever, but I've got to try, honestly try the one thing that I have not really honestly tried. And that's just stop putting all these mind altering substances in me. And, um, you know, maybe it'll kill me. I don't know, but I know I'm going to die if I, I keep living like this. You know, I know I'm going to die. I, I would never have made it to liver failure or anything like that. Um, I would have died in some immensely stupid way like <laughs> you know I, i'm known for jumping on stage and shit when i was drunk i like to go up on rooftops and sometimes hop from one rooftop to the other you know because i thought i was spider-man um or climb things or you know every now and then get in fights with people i shouldn't get in fights with <laughs> so i, I would have died in some immensely uh embarrassing and stupid manner um and it would have happened sooner rather than later because that's where my drinking was going. But that was that moment, dude. It was just like this, this weird moment, man. Um, and, and that's why I say like when people are talking to me about wanting to get sober, as I said, there's nothing wrong with drinking if you can do it and it's not harming you. If you drink like a normal person, uh, there's nothing wrong with it. I am not anti-alcohol. Uh, I am anti-alcohol for Randy. That's the only thing I'm qualified really to, to uh, comment on. But it, it, I, uh, the train left the station for a second. When I, when I tell people, when I talk to them about quitting drinking, um, it's like there's, there's just nothing in it if you've reached a certain level. And you don't have to go 
if you've reached this level where drinking is bringing you depression and despair, and generally, if you are honest with yourself and look at your life, you know, and, and maybe even ask some questions to some people around you, is my drinking bothering you? And, and they're honest with you, you know? If you've reached that level, you don't have to get to some sort of weird point where like you're homeless, living in a van down by the river, or you're wearing a trench coat, pissing yourself, living underneath the, the classic alcoholic stereotypes, you know, mm-hmm. um, you don't have to, you don't have to go to that level. You can just stop anytime you want, you know, um, regrettably for most of us, it takes a lot of pain. Uh, particularly guys like me, because I'm not that smart. I'm a bit of a knucklehead and shit has to get beaten into my head before it finally, finally sinks in. Oh yeah, dude, you, maybe you shouldn't drink, you know? Um, Once you so, have that moment of clarity in Australia, Randy, how easy is the transition for you? How easy is it? Yeah. Well, I mean, I've been like, now it's exceedingly easy, dude. I've been sober 10 years and I do not miss it at all. Um that being, you know, that being said, like the first, I, let me tell you about my first day sober, right? So like I woke up and I'm just like, oh, you know, I have this sort of moment of clarity where I'm like, I can't, I, I got to try something different. And I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to try this. And, um, you know, I, I'm a, sounds kind of hokey to say this, but I don't give a fuck. Like I, I'm a pretty spiritual person. I believe in You're amongst uh, friends here, mate. Yeah, dude. I, and you know, to anybody who's not, that's cool. You, you don't have to be, you know what I mean? Um, I'm not pushing that on anyone cause I don't like it when people push it on me, but I'm a spiritual person and I believe in a, uh, a higher power or an order to the universe or, or something, you know? Um, I don't believe in a white dude with a beard up in heaven casting judgment and all that shit. You know, that's not cool. But I believe that there is a, a natural order to the way things go. And, and I believe that the universe functions because uh, it, it, what an amazing thing the universe is, how big it is. I believe that it functions uh, as, as well as it does without completely falling to pieces because of some sort of force. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, call it a higher power, call it the spirit of the universe, whatever you want. So when, when I had that, that feeling of like, I got to stop, I just, I asked whatever was out there. I'm like, please help me, help me. Uh, and I immediately got some relief immediately. And I was like, Oh, you don't have to do this. And that relief washed over me and it lasted for about 45 seconds. <laughs> and then the, the little monkey in my brain starts said, dude, let's not rush this. Maybe you're just having a bad day. Let's wean yeah. our way off rather than let's, stop altogether. Let's, yeah. Let, let's not, let's just like, let's just not rush into this, bro. Aren't you being a little bit hasty? You know, that's how crazy I was. 22 years of insane like I don't use this word to describe myself often, but this was what I did in staying rock star style drinking and, and drugging. Cause that's what I did, you know? Um, 
I, I was like, despite all that, you know, all the evidence that is presented to me, it's ruining your fucking life. Like my mind was just like, whoa, 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 dude, let's not rush this. Like, you know, like, like maybe, maybe you got it this time. And that's alcoholism, you know? Yeah. I was going to say addiction, addictive behavior, addictive, you know, cause I can relate to that on, on some level, yeah. uh, not quite, not quite to the extreme, but you know, I've recently have weaned way off of all things. I have a drink here and there, but, uh, that voice, but, that voice is powerful, right? And yeah. when that voice starts to turn and say something different, which I'd love to get to with you, because the where you are now, we'll get there. But that voice is powerful, man. It's yeah. it's it can rock your entire existence. And I've had that voice, you know, submerge me into severe depression. And that voice yeah. has inspired me to write songs and do great things. But yeah, that's crazy, right? To be at that point where you've done all those things and there's the the brain can still go wait a second that's a crazy moment and that happens to a lot of addicts yeah well that's because you know i don't really understand the the cause of addiction and and alcoholism it's not really important to me it doesn't fucking matter to me why i'm an alcoholic is it genetic is it because i drank myself to it is it because you know, I, I was a weirdo and a misfit growing up. I don't know. I don't fucking care. It doesn't matter. The reason has no, like, applicable, uh, like, use in my life, you know? Like, what does matter is what I do about it. Is that, like, yo, you're an alcoholic. You cannot do this. So I got that weird relief, and then it went away after about 45 seconds. And then I was just like, don't listen to that that voice because – my when i drink dude my 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 perceptions shift to something different and it's really hard to explain to someone who is not like is not like me like i can talk to alcoholics and, and drug addicts and i can be like you know when this happens and this and they're like oh yeah 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 because you do crazy shit you don't think right and someone who's not like us, who can take a drink and have a good time and still remain themselves, they don't understand that. But with me, when I drank, I became a different person. That does not excuse anything I did while I was drinking. That I am not making any excuses at all. I am just explaining, and I, I have to be held accountable for my actions, no matter whether I was drunk or not. But I'm trying to explain, man, and I to people who have relatives or friends who are addicts or alcoholics that I talk to, you know, I try to explain to them that is not the person you know when they're sober. That is a different person. And it was I was a different person because I'd do things and I'd wake up the next morning, you know, I'd come on the bus and say some crazy shit to my bandmates out of nowhere. And I'd wake up in the morning and be like, why did I do that? Why why would I do that? I would never do that normally. It's not like I'm repressing the urge to do this shit, you know, um, but to get drunk and crazy shit happens. So, you know, I got that sense of relief. It went away. I was like, bro, you got to hang in there, you know? So I was shook up later that day. We went to the gig. Um, I uh, talked to a couple of people on that tour who were sober. And I was like, yo, I'm, I'm trying to like, not drinking, they're like, hang in there, dude, you know? And then I went to my dressing room and I 
change clothes. I was talking to a couple of the sober, there were like three or four different sober people on that tour. And I was talking to them. I was like, oh shit, I got to go on stage. So I went to my dressing room, changed my clothes. And then I walked out on stage in front of 17,000 people hung over and completely like losing my mind, weeping. Like I was crying. I was like, what is, what is going on with my life? You know? And, and I had long hair, thank God, because it was in my face, that whole show. And I, and I got up there and did my job, you know? And no one ever knew I was on stage completely falling to pieces, you know? Um, and that was my first day of sobriety. Wow. I, I got off stage and I went back to my hotel room and I made sure that I had no booze in there or anything. Um, and I told my band, you know, I'm like, I'm not drinking. And they're kind of, like, yeah, whatever, Randy. They heard that before, but I took it really seriously, like super seriously, like where I would not touch a beer bottle or a can or anything. I can do that now. It doesn't like, I can go buy beer for a friend of mine. You know, they're like, I'll go get you a six pack or whatever. It doesn't freak me out. But at that point in time, I wouldn't even touch it. I remember sitting in the dressing room, like in my first week of sobriety and Willie who no longer drinks by the way, but Willie, uh, our guitar player asked me, he said, Hey dude, you're sitting on the floor. Will you hand me a beer? And I'm like, no dude. He's like, really? And I'm like, I can't do it, dude. I can't even, I can't even reach in that cooler and touch that beer bottle. I just, I can't, I cannot do it because I was so scared. Um, and he was like, all right, dude, <laughs> go ahead and got it. But you know, it worked. Um, the first like three, the first three months of sobriety, like you'll hear people who get sober, like they'll, they're, they're like super, uh, they can be super euphoric. Right. <laughs> because all of a sudden you're, you're seeing everything. And that was, certainly the case for me for like the first month or two to where I was annoyingly happy about it. Right. <laughs> I was like, I'm sober. I'm I feel sober. that way when I do detoxes, I know exactly the feeling you mean. Yeah. I'm yeah. like, this is, I'm sober. Everybody's like, God, dude, I'm starting to wish you drink again. It's great. It's great. I'm yeah. sober. You know, well, it's almost like a, a new high, like being sober is the high for a while there. Right. 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 And then I, in about four months, uh, it all fell to pieces. And this is, this is not for everyone. And I'm not trying to scare anyone uh, to, from away from getting sober. I'm just telling you my experience. This is the honest truth. And it might help someone who's in this situation. Exactly. But, you know, around four months, a deep, 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 soul-crushing existential depression set into me. And intellectually, I knew nothing was wrong. Intellectually, I knew, in fact, that my life had gotten in those three or four months immensely, immensely better, right? Immensely. You know, my family uh, was not upset with me. Uh, you know, my lady trusted me again, you know, to not do crazy shit. Um my friends were like, they weren't worried I was going to catch their hair on fire or anything random and weird like that, you know? I wasn't going to destroy anything. So I, I, everything was okay. And then this immense, immense, immense depression set down to where, like, all of a sudden I was just crying all the time. Like, I'd be in my backyard, like, trying to leave the house and, like, I couldn't tie my shoes. And I'm just like, <laughs> 
I can't do it. I can't. I, I very clearly remember sitting there like, I cannot tie my shoes, crying, crying, just weeping. Um, and I was like, something is, is wrong. Something is wrong with me. God, I'm getting a little emotional thinking about it. Mm. I was like, something is wrong with me, but I don't know what it is, you know? Um, and, and I talked to a friend of mine who had been sober for a while and he's like, dude, uh, your brain is rewiring itself, yeah. you know, because I, as I said, I drank and did a lot of drugs. I should be dead so many times over. Um, I did so many drugs and drank so much for 22 years. And what that does, it, it actually changes the structure, the molecular structure of your brain, the synapses. They, they get wired only to connect and make uh, serotonin when you get alcohol, you know, or drugs. And my buddy said, look, if you can wait six months uh, before you see a shrink who's going to put you on drugs. Cause I think people are over medicated in general. Yeah, right. Facts. I think, I think it's like, Oh, something's wrong with you. Take a pill, you know? And he's like, but I, he had real talk to me. He's like, look, dude, you know, if you feel suicidal or something, you're going to have to, uh, to, to handle that. But like, I didn't feel suicidal, but I was so fucking sad for no reason, like no reason whatsoever. So, I mean, I toughed it out for another two months and I, dude, I cried every day. It was brutal. And I got to six months and I was like, cause he told me if you can wait to see if your brain rewires itself, because any, uh, any doctor may not be able to accurately assess your situation while your brain is putting itself back together. Uh, you know, I drank for 22 years. My brain isn't going to be better overnight. Mm. So I waited. And at the end of six months, I was like, I, I can't do it. I cannot do this. So I went to a, a psychiatrist. I can't, who is it? Which one is it that prescribes a drug? Psychiatrist or psychologist? I think it's the psychiatrist. Psychiatrist I, is the drug one. Yeah, I think yeah, so. Yeah. I went to a psychiatrist and they were like, um, okay, dude, and I told him my situation, really cool, cool psychiatrist. And I really didn't want to take any antidepressants because I wanted to be 100% drug free. You know what I mean? But it, it was at a point where I could not function. So, yeah. like, well, your brain, this doctor explained to me, he's like, your brain right now apparently has lost the ability to produce serotonin on its own. Right? So, you might need something to give it a kickstart, right? And, uh, and we're going to try something. Maybe you might not be have to be on it forever or whatever, you know? Um, <clears throat> but we should try something. And at that point, I was willing because I was just in so much psychic and emotional pain. So they put me on this drug called Pristique at first, right? An antidepressant. And, um, and the name... I, Sounds fancy, Pristique. They, I'm on Pristique. Almost like a fragrance. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and when I got on Pristique, right, all of a sudden I wasn't depressed, but I felt like I was coming down from cocaine the whole time. Like, like, like just coming down from doing, if anybody here, <laughs> not any of you fine listeners have ever done any cocaine. But um, 
you feel kind of speedy by the way um but it felt like that and i was like yo i can't do that um so then they put me he put me on a, let's try something else uh, on a low dose of this stuff called lexapro and i was on that for about a year and a half um and i was writing my book and i was like uh, I was down in North Carolina and having to drive all the way five hours to Virginia to see the shrink once a month in order to get my prescription and then just turn around and drive back down. I was like, you know what? This is really a waste of time and I'm going to try and wean myself off of it. And so I did. Um, and Did writing the book help that process, Randy? No, writing the book doesn't help anything. That book, writing that no. book did not help shit. No. That, was, <laughs> that was like me writing a book basically uh to explain what happened so it didn't help get anything out of you it was it was already out you know like like dude i mean i had done press we did a documentary like like that was a pretty public incident you know so it wasn't like i had to like have this catharsis or something it was like okay in fact the main reason why I wrote the book, other than I thought my story might have some value to help people, and and I found that to be true from people who have written it. Countless people have told me my book helped them. But the main reason why I wrote that book, besides trying to help people, was so that I wouldn't have to tell the story anymore. And you wouldn't <laughs> have to do a prison record. Yeah, right? I, yeah. I don't have. I don't. I don't have to talk about it. And oh, it's like, man. oh, you want to know? guess what? I wrote a 500 page book. Boom. Yeah. So, so I was nervous, uh, weaning down off of that. And I was like, well, if it doesn't work, you know, I'll just drive back up. But I really didn't want to be on, um, antidepressants anymore. I, I wanted to just not be on drugs because basically it's a pain in my ass. And so I weaned myself down off that. And, um, I still deal with some depression, you know, from time to time. Uh, Sometimes it comes to me, but instead of like getting super upset about it and like being like, why am I feeling this way? And I want to feel better. You know, I'm like, okay, dude, this is what your brain does mm. and recognize it. Know that it's going to pass. The sky is not falling. You know, it's just chemicals going cuckoo, cuckoo, cuckoo in your brain. And I've learned to you know sit in that and and let it pass through so um i am grateful for the antidepressants that i was on because i like i could not could not stop crying could you know it was crazy so that helped kickstart my brain but you know since then it's been okay you know so that's you know that's my experience um that is that has been my experience with it. Um, so, so well, I, gotta, I gotta ask you when when um, did when did photography, surfing, all the things that you you've, you're doing now? You're very active and, and very positive guy. Mm -hmm. uh, and the guy that I met, you know, at side stage when I had first rejoined Killswitch, which is a story that I hold near and dear to my heart. When you were basically saying welcome back, and you did a great job, and then we talked punk yeah. rock. I was like, this guy fucking rules. Um, so when did the photography start? Was that something? All right. So basically what I want to say is the byproduct of you being sober and sort of figuring out who you were again, you had energy, you had time to pursue other things. 
when mm-hmm. did photography, surfing, uh, give me radio, when did all these things enter in and how did that roll out for you when you found a new energy in being sober because you could actually focus on these things? Right. That did not occur overnight, but like I noticed, um, when I got sober, right. Uh, like, I mean, I did some good work while I, while I was drinking, you know, I got sober in 2010 and I joined the band in 1995. So I was in the band for 15 years and a lot of records we did, people dug, you know, that during that time, it's not like I was just totally useless, but when I got sober, my brain started to the point now where it's kind of a pain in the ass. It's the creative engine just engaged and it started going and going and going. And like, I'd have all these ideas and I still do to the point where now, instead of like, me sitting there going, go away, I just want to drink and get fucked up and forget about everything. Now it's like, stop, stop. We have to focus on one thing at a time. We, we, like, we, we need to work on this photography exhibit, you know, or we need to work on this article or we need to work on this new book we're doing, you know, or we're going to act in this TV show. We have to focus on this one thing right now. You cannot write a book have a photography exhibit, act in a TV show, uh, go on a surf trip to South America for three months and have like an experience that you can't do all that at the same time. So I have to like focus, you know, um, but I'm not an ADHD type of guy. Um, I just have a lot of ideas. So photography uh, started for me really uh, probably around 2012 um and i like i said i've been sober got since 2010 and i bought this uh camera because i wanted to do this documentary right um and i wanted to do a documentary about unplugging from the internet because um you know it's obviously it's a valuable tool we're using it right now but i was like really tired of of the internet, right? And I was like, I'm really sick of this. And I'm like, I'm not gonna have a cell phone. I'm not gonna use the internet. If they wanna do interviews with me, people can call a landline, all this shit. I had all this stuff planned out and I was gonna unplug from the internet for a year and write a book about it. And so I'm sitting on a plane in Australia uh, sometime in you know 2012. And I'm sitting right next to our dear friend, Jamie Josta. And I tell him this whole spiel. I'm like, dude, I'm going to unplug from the internet for a whole year. I'm going to go back to caveman waves, you know, because we, we lived that way before. We toured before cell phones, you know. I'm, I'm going to do it, and then I'm going to write a book about it. And he just listened to me yap for 30 minutes. He goes, okay, here's how we're going to do the movie. And he just threw the idea of, like, a book out the window. He's like, you got to do a documentary. And I was like, okay, cool. So I got this, I asked some friends of mine who did the um, documentary As the Palaces Burn was about the whole Czech thing. Um, Don Argett is director, fine director. I asked him, I said, dude, what's a reasonable camera that I can shoot video with? Because I want to start making a documentary. You know, I had this grand idea. So he he told me a a prosumer model of, of camera to get. And I wound up doing some interviews for this documentary, but mostly just filming skateboarding, like me and my friends out skateboarding with this, this camera. And one day I was in my kitchen and I saw my coffee maker. It's a French press 
with a domed silver lid. And I was getting ready to go out skateboarding and shooting video with my, my buddy, Josh. And I see my lid, uh, the lid of the French press, and I see my reflection and it's all distorted. It kind of looked like a fisheye, like, like in a Beastie Boys video, you know, like, Wah! check your head style. Like, yeah, exactly. And I was like, wow, that's neat looking. And I had my camera in my hand and I'm like, let me try and use this thing for what it's, you know, meant for. Let me try and take a picture because I was never interested in being a photographer ever. So I put it on um, automatic, which we, we now, you know, those of you who shoot photos call it dummy mode because um, everybody's a photographer until they enter manual mode, right? So I put it on dummy mode and I looked at this, this weird reflection. I took a picture and the image popped up on the screen and I was like, oh, I'm a genius. I'm a genius. <laughs> right? <laughs> I was not a genius, right? There was nothing special about this picture. It was an entirely average picture that I took with this camera. But um, it was like this weird sort of bug that bit me, you know? And so I started carrying that camera with me everywhere. And that was, you know, nine years ago. And uh, photography has become a hugely uh, significant part of my life. You know, I'm rarely without a, a camera. I uh, shoot an ambassador for Leica Camera, a uh, German camera band, and their American branch, Leica Camera USA. They hook me up and loan me gear, fly me to Germany sometimes for product releases. It's wild. Um, so, Nicky Six is well in with them as well, right? He's a big fan. Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yes. Nicky, they flew for the release of the M10, the latest uh, version of the M camera. They flew me and Nicky Six to Germany, to the nice. factory together. And we were like, the two dirtbag tattooed rock and roll guys there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and yeah. like, and there are all these world famous, like Magnum agency photographers, like internationally respected photographers. And me and Nikki are walking around like, this is incredible, you know, like geeking, look at everybody. Like, how did we get here? <laughs> you know, yeah. like little kids. It was awesome. You know, we had such a good time. They're lovely people. Um, but photography, you know, that came out of, you know, I blame it on Josta because he made me get a fucking camera. I blame a lot of good things on Josta. Um, he's the source. That's, of that's why we're here on this podcast. Yes, Jamie, you are the source of all goodness. Yeah. <laughs> so, and then for surfing, you know, like I had rented a beach house in North Carolina, which I kept for an epic six or seven years. It was 600 bucks a month. I used my book advance to pay rent on that in order to, to to uh to to write my book I, and uh it was a block from the beach 600 bucks a month you don't find deals like that like right on the ocean down in north carolina and um regrettably it's gone now i don't have that anymore but uh it, i was there and i've always been a skateboarder my whole life you know and i grew up in coastal regions but and I, in the water often, and I've played around on surfboards before, but like, I never had one of my own cause they're real expensive, you know, compared to a skateboard. Um, and I've been skateboarding since I was a young kid. They're a lot cheaper. Um, so, you know, I, I was in my forties writing this book at the beach and I was like, I'm at the beach. There's the ocean. I, I can actually afford a surfboard. Um, I'm gonna learn to surf, you know? And so I learned to surf pretty quickly because uh, not well, but I learned the basics very quickly because I've been a skateboarder my whole life and because I'm from a coastal region already familiar with the way the water works. So, um, and that has become another just 
massively significant part of my life because it's sort of like my church. And it's also sort of like meditation in, in a sense, because when you're surfing, everything is changing constantly, constantly changing. Uh, the wave never stands still. It's not like skateboarding where you go to the skateboard and you see like, you know, a half a quarter pipe and you're like, okay, I'm going to go up and do try a Smith grind right now, or I'm going to go up and do a rock and roll, or I'm going to go up and do, you know, an Ollie over the coping or whatever you, that, that obstacle stays constant. It's static. In the ocean, once you're standing up on a surfboard, even a predictable wave, fairly a spot with consistent waves, every wave is different. So you're not thinking, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, because you can't really plan. You have to adapt to the, the, uh, the situation, and it's protean, and it's constantly shifting. So what that does for me is it shuts off the thinking brain, because I can't think I want to do this. I'm going to do that. I can only do. I can only instinctively do when I'm surfing. So it it it's like meditation in a sense, you know. And um, I get that. Know, yeah. Since I started surfing, man, I've surfed in Australia, Asia, all over the states, um, South America, everywhere. I, I love it, you know. Love it, and it, it's it's good for you. <laughs> it's good for you. Yeah. I, uh, I get a similar feeling when I do cycling, there's something about mm -hmm. that was, I think that was the first thing for me that really helped me overcome depression and sort of realize it was a tool to help me navigate my, my mind was getting on that bike. And if I'm having rider's block or whatever, anything getting on that bike or hiking these days, now I live up in the mountains. Those two things are crucial. And I get, I get emotional when I get on my bike. I get, I'll do like a happy cry sometimes. <laughs> it's just yeah, because I need it, and it just fulfills this this need in me. I love the way you just described surfing. I've always been fascinated by it, but I've never gave it a shot. I mean, I did once, and I bailed pretty hard. But well, uh, yeah. I'll take you anytime, dude. Yeah, I'm a fish, and I love the ocean. But yeah, surfing is just kind of eluded me as well. Interesting. Well, interesting. Well, also, you know, you're talking about the bike and stuff. Science tells us, and this is not like kooky science like youtube science but science <laughs> tells us that physical exercise is great for your emotional health mm. it really is you know i mean there's people who overdo it like i must get troll and that's their whole life or whatever um but staying active like it, it, it's good for your emotional health because it, it produces endorphins you know um, you, the mind and the body are very much connected, you know, and your mental health can affect your physical health and your physical health can affect your mental health. Yeah. So, it's a reoccurring theme on this show from the guests that we've had And Matt and I are total nature boys. So oh, we're always throwing that I mean, on. We don't get outside and get naked. Not yeah. that kind of, not that kind of naturism, but yeah, we do like being outdoors uh, well, and being active. I, I like, going outside and getting naked <laughs> uh, uh, i can see that <laughs> maybe not with you dudes but like, <laughs> uh, hey. no an another interesting thing about surfing there you're talking about describing is like when you think about and this is kind of this is something that's really cool that i read in a book called caught inside it was it's about this guy who wanted to learn to surf so he goes to southern california he wants to get shacked meaning he wants to get in a barrel um 
but he wrote this description about surfing and it, it like kind of blew my mind. So when you think about a wave, right? A wave is not one piece of water. It's a pulse of energy moving through the water, right? And what it's caused by, solar radiation hits the earth. You know what I mean? And this produces winds. And winds produce disturbances in the water. Um, kind of like if you drop a coin in the water, it goes bloop. These disturbances in the water travel outward from where the wind hits the water. And as they travel, if they're big enough, they start to get organized. So there's these pulses moving through the water. And it's never in one, obviously, in one specific spot in the water because it's in the water. It's just traveling through the water. And it gets closer and closer and closer to the shore. The, the bottom of the ocean, the topography of the ocean, uh, determines if a wave will break or not. It'll hit like a shelf, and then it'll, it'll, this pulse of energy will be hit the shelf, boom, and then the wave is formed, and it'll go like that, right? So a wave is a form of energy. It's not a body of water. It is a form of energy moving through a body of water. So until someone figures out how to travel via light or sound, Right now, surfing is the only way you can ride, actually ride a form of energy. Wow. So it's a trip, dude. So I'm like, yeah, that's amazing. I, yeah. Yeah, I, never, I never thought of it that way. I mean, I know those things, but to put them together in that sort of framework. Well, I, yeah, I read riding, it in the book. Riding energy. Wow. Yeah. It's, it's <laughs> the only way they know of, you know? So like, it's killer. Wow. Randy, can I ask you this? I... I've obviously not experienced anything like what you went through with your incarceration, but there's a loose connection to something I've been through in my past is that I broke my back eight years ago. Mm. And I had to, I had to spend three months flat in bed doing what they call conservative treatment. So right. it was a, a three month period of my life where I was just flat in bed, looking at the ceiling. I couldn't mm. even, couldn't even sit up, couldn't roll over. And Sounds like fun. It was, <laughs> it was a trip. Um, Do you recommend I, it? No. Well, <laughs> Here's what's up. Obviously, I don't recommend breaking your back to anybody, but I took so much away from that experience. And I'd love you to shine some light on what you learned mentally through the, you know, the process that you went through and how you stayed positive and how you stayed sane and, and what got you through mentally that experience. Because I know what got me through it, but I'd love to, to hear your take on, you know, being entrapped, not just physically, but mentally and how you get through that as an Right. Well, the, the, I think that's what you just said kind of like um, gives the answer to that. Physically, I was, in fact, trapped in this prison. Mentally, I was not. No one can enslave your mind can, and can chain your mind if, if you don't let it. You have to make a conscious decision like, here, I am free. They will yep. never, ever, ever lock this up, you know? Um, and that's easier said than done, obviously, because when you're in depressing circumstances, like with a broken back staring at the ceiling or stuck in a prison or, you know, whatever, whatever the situation may be, uh, it's, it's easy to let these external circumstances affect your mind. A few things that really helped me is, A, I was sober when I went to prison. Thank God. You know, because I'd probably still be there if I hadn't because I'd done something stupid and they would attack time on or whatever. Um, but for me, one thing that really, really helped me was 
staying in the present moment, right? Staying cognizant of the fact that in this moment, uh, I am okay. Yes, this sucks. I'm not at home, I'm not with my family, I'm not with my friends, I'm not on tour with my band. Yes, the food sucks here, um, but I'm actually okay. There is a roof over my head, I have a place to sleep, I get fed three times a day. Yes, it's really subhuman, like atrocious food. They should probably be charged with human rights violations for the shit they fed us, and I'm not joking. <laughs> but like, I am actually okay. No one is shooting at me. I'm not in the desert in like Afghanistan with people shooting at me. I could be there, you know. I'm not in a in you know somewhere in a nation that's in the, like Syria or something where there, there's like a civil war. You know, um, I'm okay. I'm sitting here, and in this moment, I am okay. I am physically and mentally okay because that's this moment. Now, if I start future tripping and thinking, oh my God, I might be going to prison for 10 years. Oh my God, I don't know if I'm ever going to get out of here. I don't, you know, oh my God, what's going to happen with my relationship? What's, you know, oh, my band, they're going to get a new singer. I'm not going to be able to make a living. My family, you know, my grandma's probably going to be dead by the time I get up. The monkey mind is spinning, 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 spinning. And what ifs, what ifs, what ifs, what ifs, what if, right? That's not the way to deal with it. You have to stay in the moment for me, you know? Okay. All, and, and I did go down those trips, obviously. I mean, that stuff didn't just come out of nowhere, I just said. But I, if I caught myself and be like, no, dude, you're okay. You're okay. Um, and people have been through a lot worse than you have and survived. Because, you know, four or five days before I was arrested in the Czech Republic, we were in Poland and I went to Auschwitz by myself all day. You know, that kind of put shit in perspective for me, right? I, I toured Auschwitz in the rain alone because nobody wanted to go with me and, and took some photos and stuff. So uh, I kept that in mind that people had been through worse than I had and come out. And, and the other thing that I really consciously worked on was uh, not only just like thinking other people have had it worse than me, not only actually saying, okay, here in this moment, I'm actually okay. What I really consciously worked on well, two things. One, I made sure to laugh every day. Um, I have a weird sense of humor, I think. I find things funny that most it's people... It's amazing, would. and it comes across really well in the book. It like, it like, I mean, obviously my situation was not funny, and what happened was very, very sad, but I had to laugh every day, you know, in, in, in prison in order to keep my spirits up. But the other thing that really, really helped me beyond making sure I laughed every day um, was remaining grateful for what I did have rather than getting resentful for the things that I didn't have, you know? Um, so like that could, in the beginning, it was just like when, it, when I got put into this cell, I was like, okay. Um, when I got arrested, I had in my, they, they let me keep this little like coin chain, coin purse. Cause when we go, we as Americans, by the way, I don't know if you know this. When we go to England or Europe, like you we don't carry use, all that change around. Yeah, we don't need <laughs> shrapnel. We call yeah. it. Right? Yeah. I, I, I gotta have something to carry this change in, right? So in my uh, little change thing that I got arrested 
they, they let me keep it. I had some guitar picks, some Lamb of God guitar picks, because I always pick them up off, you know, to give the fans or whatever. Uh, I had like randomly, I think I had my insurance card in it, <laughs> right? And uh, a couple of other things. That was all I had. So I was sitting there and I, and like, I was like, well, I don't have shit. I got like two cigarettes. Um, when I was arrested, I had like two left in my pack. I smoked those. I got to my cell. I opened it up. I'm like, well, I have an insurance card. At least I have something to read. And I read my insurance card like over and over and over and over again. Cause I, I like reading. And that was until I was able to get some books brought to me. Um, eventually, um, like I remain grateful, you know, for the fact that it wasn't winter at that point in time, because we were allowed outside once a day for an hour in this little tiny area. And I'm like, you know what? I'm grateful I'm coming outside in their sunshine, you know, rather than it's snowing on me and I can't go outside. Um, I was grateful just eventually I got some paper and I was like, okay, I can write, I can write now. I'm grateful that I can write. I, and I have this time to think um, about things that I want to write about. And I tried to remain grateful instead of being like, I don't, I'm not out there touring. I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. You know, I'm like, okay, well, but dude, you can do something else at this point in time. You can, you can like focus and write and, and, think about other things that you may need to address in your life. And I, and I, I was grateful for that time. You know, I honestly was. Um, yeah, gratitude is a very powerful, powerful thing. It's become my daily mantra. When I wake up in the morning, the first thought I have, the first prayer in my mind is, is gratitude. And I've made a discipline of this for maybe the best, Oh, at least a year, year and a half, especially yeah. during the whole you know pandemic situation. And it's, it's changed everything for me. It really has. Like when you start your day off with gratitude in your heart, the world looks different. Everything looks different. And you yes. are, you are able to be, I think more present in, in the moment as well. So I, I love that. I love that you keep mentioning gratitude and it's something that's become huge to me on a daily basis. Well, I wrote a, I don't know if you ever written a gratitude list, but I wrote about it in my book. It's where you yeah. just list 10 things you're grateful for. And yeah. I did that in prison. Like, I remember like one day I was like, oh, this is crazy. I was like, oh yeah, I need to write a gratitude list. And I just wrote like 10 things out and I, it's in the book. I can't remember exactly yeah. what they were. Mark does that on a regular basis on Twitter. Mark, Mark does that too. He, do, he yeah. does a gratitude list. Everything. It's super important. And it like, and even if you aren't feeling grateful while you write it, um, if you, you know, like even if you're you're not like in this in this spiritual uh, nirvana, like Buddha-like state of everything's okay. You, 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 when you write out, look, I'm grateful. I have food in my cupboard for one day, you know, you write that out and you look at it and you're like, you know what? There's people who don't have food in their cupboard for one day, you know, uh, and it starts sinking in, you know, because really, you know, we, we are so, um, I'm not saying that poverty doesn't exist here in America, but you have traveled, you know, um, like we have it pretty awesome here, even with the, even with the sort of, uh, economic depression of, of this pandemic. Um, and it's been bad in that 
people have died needlessly in my in my mind a lot of people have died needlessly due to uh carelessness um and also in the beginning not just understanding what was going on uh and it's bad that a lot of businesses have gone down the toilet and people have lost a lot of things you know but for the most part we in america still have it really good compared to a lot of places and oh, absolutely uh, our, our lower class would be considered wealthy in other countries absolutely yes. and, yeah. and people who don't travel don't understand that you know 42 percent, i believe now of americans have a passport um which is huge it's a massive number uh, a few years ago it was like 23 percent. so like <clears throat> this whole pandemic thing I, also, man, to and I'm not trying to sound like a dick here because people have lost things and people have died and it has been rough on people emotionally, uh, financially, mentally, all that stuff. It has been rough. Uh, but when you've been to prison, right, <laughs> sitting in your house for a year, you know, with Netflix and you're able to leave whenever you want. You know, you, you can still get groceries. You can still order shit on Amazon and have it delivered to your fucking house. You know, you can play Xbox. You can do whatever. Um, even if you don't have, like, money to do those things, you can get outside and go for a walk and exercise. Compared to prison, it's not that big of a deal. It's just not, you know. Well, it's perception, isn't it? It's all perception and the eyes of the yeah. beholder and, and shifting your perception to to necessitate your thriving and your survival. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, like, yeah, I'm not downplaying the severity of this whole thing, but it's it's just not the end of the fucking world. Um, it's just not. And the other thing, and this is a pet peeve of mine, not to be negative, but I'm just going to go ahead and speak on it. If there's one phrase I could have removed from the English language until everyone learned how to use it properly upon pain of death, proper use of this word, the word is unprecedented, right? Unprecedented. Because this whole last year, you've heard in these un, this unprecedented pandemic, these unprecedented political turmoil, this unprecedented this. No, none of this is unprecedented. Not even in America in the last hundred years. We've had insane political figures. We've had uh, you know the Spanish flu. We've certainly had deadlier pandemics before. Um, we've had natural disasters. We've had economic depressions. My grandma was raised in it. She's a hundred years old. You know. And we've even had violently insane toilet paper hoarding before in the 70s. Johnny Cash made a joke, not Johnny Cash, Johnny Carson made a joke on The Tonight Show. He's during the, the gas shortage in the 70s when I was just a kid. He's like, you know, now there's no toilet paper on the shelves. That caused four months of a toilet paper shortage and like violent hoarding and shit. So, like, none of this is unprecedented, you know? When you're talking about perception, when you pull back from the myopic sort of like the myopic vision that the modern age gives us of this is just now, 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 now. And you look at the bigger picture, you're like, okay, humanity has been through this shit before yeah. with far less technology, with far less communications like devices, with far Comforts. less science, yeah. you know, and we have sort of, this is not the black plague, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's just not. Um, and we're going to get through it. So 
maintaining perspective on those things is important. And I think to do that, you have to look at history, you know, and, and um, that seems to be something that in the, in the mass sort of populace has gone by the wayside, but I'm just a history nerd, you know? So no, it's the, you're, you're definitely speaking truth. And I think a lot of, a lot of people need to hear that. Absolutely. Yeah. Hey, well, do you read, you, I, I'm a big fan of the stoic philosophers. If you yeah. read Mar, Marcus Aurelius, the philosopher King, you know, he wrote about uh, the last, almost his entire reign was, was spent during the Antoinon plague. I believe it killed millions, you know, and he, in, in he was. This is the most powerful man in the world at the time, the head of the Roman Empire, and his whole thing. Like, he he probably died of this plague, I believe. But he maintained like perspective during all this. I don't know if you ever read his Meditations, Marcus Aurelius. I highly recommend it. It was a book he wrote, sort of as a journal to himself to keep himself right sized. Um, and keep perspective on these things. So when you read his meditations written 2000 years ago, if you were to change a name in a place or two, it's the same thing as today. Like human nature has not changed and the physical nature of problems hasn't changed either, you know? Um, except for, in my opinion, the only thing that's really uh, changed is our ability to destroy the environment. You know, that is ramped up. We are in the Anthropocene where mankind's activity can actually completely destroy life on Earth. <laughs> you know, it'll yeah. come back. We'll just be gone. You yeah, know, that's it, isn't it? The Earth will live on. We won't. Yeah. So we've reached the point where we have to change. Um, we have to start taking care of this blue spaceship that is spinning in the universe. It's, it's the only spacecraft we have right now. The, mm -hmm. Other than that, dude, our ability to to completely destroy the human race and, and a lot of nature with our technology. Um, everything's the same, dude. Everything is the same as it was 2000 years ago, 5,000 years ago. Human nature hasn't changed. We aren't any different physically than we were 2000 years ago. You know? Yeah. I, I think people would do well to remind themselves of that and educate themselves on that as well. You know, because if anything else, just selfishly, it helps you get out of your own head and woes, doesn't it? Because you realize, Oh, this situation that I'm in isn't unique. It's yes. age old. It's age old. Yes. Yes. And that's the, that's the sort of, um, that's, that's such a, I guess we, we call it in, you know, those of us who are sober, like with the drinking, when you're thinking, it goes kind of, I relate everything to alcoholism. We call it being terminally unique, right? Like when I'm drinking and I'm thinking about, oh, I'm drinking because of my problems and no one could ever understand. I'm under this pressure because, you know, I'm in this band and uh, this marriage failed and, you know, my parents don't like me. I drink, 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 drink. No one understands me. Yeah, that, that whole point, woe is me mentality. Yeah, at that point, you become terminally unique. You become convinced of your own special hmm. nature. No one's special, you know? No one. We're all just human beings. And I think social media uh, is problematic with that kind of stuff. There's like this sort of um, presentation, a highly curated version of reality that um, people put forth, even regular people, you know, they're always like, I'm looking good. 
I'm, uh, you know, I'm eating something cool. You know, I'm going somewhere neat. I'm always doing something neat. And then you have the influencers who are always like magically beside like some lagoon in Hawaii and yoga pants doing like some sort of shit, you know, there's this presentation of this magical existence that someone is perpetually in this happy, joyous state, which is complete and utter bullshit. You know what? None of these influencers ever post. They never post a selfie of them sitting on the toilet, sweating profusely as they suffer explosive diarrhea. Right? <laughs> like no one ever posts the diarrhea face selfie ever. <laughs> but but everybody gets diarrhea. Yeah. Everybody, that beautiful, beautiful, perfect woman with perfect. She has diarrhea, and she looks horrible when she has it. You know, it's true, but it's no, so one, ever puts, no yeah. one ever puts that. And it's like this false <laughs> representation of, of us as human beings, mm. you know? Um, and no one should have diarrhea all the time. Don't get me yeah. wrong, but it, but it, <laughs> it happens to us. You if, know? You're, if you're an alcoholic, you probably do. Yeah. So I think that with this presentation of this fucking, yeah, you do. Yeah, I didn't shit solid for you. Uh, with this presentation of like this false reality, man, like people, uh, especially younger people, look at this stuff on social media and they think because they're so engaged in this stuff and they're like, I'll never be that. You know, I, I like my life isn't that. And, and they feel, inadequate you know and and it's just like this false paradigm to to aspire to and then they're like i'm never going to be that my problems me 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 it's comparative you know it's all comparative and like i think you know obviously you need money to live in our society but after a certain point man money doesn't make you any happier having stuff doesn't make you any happier you know, um, because when you die, they always say you can't take it with you. It's kind of cliche, right. but it's true. You know, the richest dude in the world with the hottest wife who has lived the most interesting, like luxury field existence. When he dies, he's going to stop breathing. That's it. That's the same thing as the poorest person in the world. When they stop breathing they they everybody dies the same way you know it's just that's the end of your existence so all this stuff that we have in our life you know before before then it's like it doesn't really matter what matters is is like i think trying to live a virtuous life you yeah know? you mentioned that we you know we travel and we see the world that's one thing that always struck me the people with the least amount of things tend to be the most joyful, soulful beings. And I've spent time with people who literally live in a shack and they will offer you food. They will offer you anything they do have. Yes. And there's a joy there that you don't see in, in cities with people with all this stuff. In fact, a lot of people that I know that have a bunch of stuff, there's a massive void in their heart and you can't fill it with stuff. Right. You know, and I feel like the, the less stuff you have, the more you have the ability to grow. And, and I think, really seek out what is important in life. And that's experience. That's the human compassion, the, the energy exchange that we have as humans. I love that stuff. And that's definitely what traveling has taught me for sure. Yeah, man, the interpersonal connection, you know, the, you know, that you, you don't get from consuming things. And 
like when I got sober, there was like this hole, right? Um, and I, it's because drinking had gone. My best friend had gone. So some people turn to like, they'll start eating. Some people turn to sex. Some people will uh, compulsively work out. They're trying to fill this void in their life. And for me, it turned into uh, buying books. Like, it's a pretty healthy habit. <laughs> right. But it got bad. Like this may seem crazy to someone, but I went to the bookstore every single day, dude. And I would be like, oh, this book will fix me. This, I, this will distract me for a while. And I was buying books. I have boxes of books that I've never read. And I, you know, I joke with like whoever I'm like, well, it's better than trying buying cocaine, you know, <laughs> but, but after a while I was like, holy shit, dude, you're out of control. It got to the point where like, I would go to the, the bookstore and people are like, oh, Hey dude, how's it going, Randy? Like, and I, it was like alcoholics when they go to the, sometimes they'll switch <laughs> like the, the booze store that they go to. Because they don't want that for some insane reason. They don't want the clerk at the at the liquor store to think they're an alcoholic, you know. So they're like, oh, "I'm not going to go to that liquor store today. I'll go to the other one." For me, it was like I started switching bookstores. <laughs> like I can't, I can't go to the bookstore because there's no human possible way I could have read all those books. And I was buying like two or three books a day, and this went on for like a couple of months. Like it, it got embarrassing. Like, I'm like, I have a book problem, dude. Like, like I, I gotta Read go. is anonymous. Yeah, I got I to go to book rehab, man. And like, I, I did get some good books out of it. And some of them I've, you know, actually read. But like, it was still, as you were saying, Jesse, just trying to fill a hole. Hmm. I'm just trying to fill a hole. And that, you know, I had to come to terms with the fact that like, you know, I have to be able to be okay with myself. I have to learn to be comfortable in my own skin without something external uh, to try and fix me. Mm -hmm. um, and the problem with possessions and stuff is that once you buy something, like I'm a camera guy, right? Um, and, I, and I shoot expensive cameras because, um, because if I'm going to use a tool, I'm going to use the best one possible. But I find you, I'll get this new Leica camera and like I get a professional discount because I, I work with them and I'll love it. And I'll be like, this is amazing, but they'll come out with something else and then I'll start wanting, you know what I mean? I'll start wanting that and I have to pull Never back. Never enough like, kind of mentality. Yes. Yes. It's like, you got to pull back and be like, no, no dude, what you have there, people would kill to have this fucking thing, mm. you know? And it's the, the sort of, the, the media, um, both the mass media with all, all its mass market advertising and both on social media, it's designed to um, instill that never enough mentality. I get this. I mean, look at car advertisements. You know what I mean? If I, if I get this car, women will think I'm sexy. Well, it's, the, it's the capitalist philosophy, isn't it? You need this to complete yourself. You need yes. this in your life to be happy. You won't yeah. be happy till you have all of these. Yeah. Exactly. And you know what? It's nonsense and it's just a money pit. You know, that's all it is. So it's just a matter of like slowly, slowly coming to terms um, with the fact that you're okay as a human being, you know, without external things. And, and I'm not saying that people don't need money. They don't need to pay rent. And, you know, 
um, it's not nice to not have, it's not nice to not have a few things because I love my cameras, you know, but outside of a few things, you really don't No material things going to make you happy. I mean, I know plenty of miserable fucking rich dudes. Mm-hmm. It's fucking yeah. sad. <laughs> yeah, I think it's just a matter of balance though. You know, I think, yeah. uh, you know, my, my greatest joys these days, um, I don't need anything. I mean, obviously I need my bills paid. I need food, but like I can just take myself and walk down the street to the river and sit by the river and I can bliss out. I can do that. And I, maybe years ago I couldn't, but mm-hmm. you know, I worked on that. Cause you're talking about, you know, self love, you're talking about being sort of present to who you are and ha- finding actually what happiness is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I forget who said this the other day to me, cause I've been talking to a lot of people like you have to work for happiness. Happiness doesn't just happen. And I mm-hmm. think when you navigate your brain, you navigate, you know, your addictions and your compulsory spending and all these things that make up the complex you, when you navigate through all that and you work at it and finding balance, I think therein lies happiness through balance, through being okay with not being okay, through being okay when when you are okay. And it's a constant ever evolving thing that, you know, I wake up one morning and I've got something going on in my head and I got to navigate through that. But overall, and all this being said, and maybe to try to bring this to a little bit of a close. So these days, the Randy you are these days, do you feel happy? Do you feel like you are in a good place with your brain and with your mind and with your sobriety and with your creativity and your career, where are you these days in your mind? Um, you know, uh, you're talking about, you have to work towards happiness. It's kind of like, it, it's kind of like what in, in the declaration of independence says when, when we rebelled against Matt's people, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it, it's life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, the pursuit happy mm-hmm. it's not you're you know it's your right to be happy it's not your fucking right to be happy right. you know you you know you have to work towards that um for me do i think i'm happy i think i'm better than happy um i think i'm content mm. right because happiness uh for me and it's kind of strange my father talked to me about this a long time ago and i'm like like, don't you want to be happy or whatever? He's like, I'd rather be content than happy, right? Because happiness is this emotional state that sometimes is uncontrollable, right? Like if all of a sudden, Jesse, the door opened and you were like, surprise, I wasn't really up in the mountains in New York or wherever the fuck I am. I was outside in your hallway. This is, you know, I'd be like, Oh shit! I'd like I'd be so happy, you know. It, it'd be like this automatic reaction. I'd be stoked. But you it's know? fleeting, right? Yeah, but that's fleeting. Mm. You know, it goes away. You know, um, to be content um, and to 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 be balanced. I think you know that's more important, um, and that's something I'm still still working on. You know, I think overall I am a content person. I think I'm a grateful person and I do have happiness in my life. I really do. Um, A lot of things make me happy, but things also make me sad. Um, Those are like two sort of things, you know, Mm -hmm. they come and go. But if I'm content in the middle, in in this moment, in this reality right now, I'm going to be okay without the highs and the lows. 
you know, this well, like, like they say, you know, one day at a time. I love that phrase, a phrase I hear a lot with, um, you know, 12 step and addiction and yeah. people that I speak to. And I love that phrase. I think it it's it can apply to anything. You know, I was just talking to Adam D yesterday. It was on his birthday and uh, it was usually Shout out Adam. Yeah, you crazy mother. Crazy. Crazy. Yeah, I was gonna say you crazy motherfucker, you crazy Daisy Duke wearing motherfucker. <laughs> but uh, yeah, he's kind of had a rough year, you know, mentally, and you know, as we all have, and that's just kind of a, a thing we've been saying to each other, you know, just take it one day at a time, man. We'll get through this together, and that, I love that. That's a great phrase. Dude, that, yeah, I think the power of words, though, what you just said, happiness versus being content. I love that because there's power in words, and I feel like people mm -hmm. always striving for happiness. But you're right. I mean, happiness comes and goes and being content, having that sense of balance brings you more peace than, you know, constantly trying to find happiness. Yeah. Like if I walk down the street, right, um, and I – some this is the stupid fantasies we have, you know. I walk down the street and I find a brown paper bag and it's full of $100 bills. I'm going to be pretty happy for a minute. You know what I mean? Like money is not the ultimate goal, but I'm going to be like, God damn, this is killer. I just found a thousand dollars or whatever. Some cameras. <laughs> yeah. It's going toward the next camera. Exactly. Or, or whatever. But that that's going to go away. If I walk down the street and I step in a big pile of dog shit, I'm not like, I'm not going to be stoked. I'm going to be unhappy. But that's going to go away too. You know, I'm going to wipe my shoe. But if I'm content walking down the street, realizing like, this is cool, man. This is a nice day. I'm out. My body is functioning. My mind is functioning. Um, and I'm just engaged in the act of moving through life itself. I'm going to be content. Mm. And, and for me, that's a place to, it's a better place to sit because happiness and, and unhappiness like we said come and go they're a passing state you mm -hmm. know and it i mean also you know no one no one's ever going to be happy all the time if you were happy all the time right you wouldn't know what happiness was facts yeah you, know? you wouldn't know i, I embrace the ups and downs because you know, sometimes the downs make you appreciate the ups so much better you know, yeah. it's a, they say about success too, you know, if you didn't really work hard for it and suffer a bit, you wouldn't enjoy your, you know, reaching your goals and, and having success and finding success. So, yeah, I, I relish in sometimes the down parts, you know, if I'm having a bad day, it's, if you're present to yourself, you're like, all right, this is just part of the process of my existence. And you can take it on better with that state of mind because you're rolling with the punches. You're just taking it one day at a time. And that's been hugely helpful for me this past year or so. I think that's very profound. And I think that in, in dealing with mental issues and so forth, this idea <clears throat> that we need to be happy all the time is, is actually can be really harmful to your mental health. If you mm -hmm. buy into that, you know what I mean? Why am I not happy? Why am I not happy? Why am I not happy? If you think you're, you're, you, that if you're unhappy ever, that that is some sort of flaw in your character or, or in, the, in the makeup of your emotional state, you're screwed because no one's happy all the time, you know? Um, and, you know, no one enjoys being unhappy or depressed. But like I said, I, I still deal with it sometimes with some depression and just sitting through it, as you said, um, and rolling through it, 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 it just, it helps, 
you know, it helps recognizing the reality of things. And then also sometimes I'm weird, like um, I like to wallow in freakish misery. Have you ever seen The Princess Bride? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you will wallow in freakish misery. I used to live in this punk house called Dirtbag Manor. It was yeah. Horrible, horrible place, right? Horrible. And it was so bad that we used to just sit there in the middle of it and be like, this sucks. We're wallowing in freakish misery and just laugh about it, you know? <laughs> sometimes it's sometimes it's funny, you know? Well, it can be your muse too as an artist, you know? I think oh, yeah. I've definitely written a few songs about being fucking miserable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Gentlemen, <laughs> let's, let's raise a cup to being content. Oh, right. Cheers, boys. Cheers. Cheers, Randy. Water, tea, and non-alcoholic beer. Yeah. Yeah, man. Doing it right. Well, Randy, thank you so much for coming on. This has been an absolute pleasure. And just I hope so, I didn't blab too much. No, you were great, man. It's just nice to hear Perfect. somebody speak from where you speak from. It's it's why I've admired you since the day I met you um in person. And I want to thank you for that. That moment that uh you sort of just kind of put your hand on my shoulder and said, Welcome back, and you reassured me I did an okay job. That was a, during a very insecure transition in my life and career. And uh, Germany? Yeah, I'll never forget that moment, dude. And then we chatted. I had an Operation Ivy shirt on. I think you started some of the lyrics, and then we just kind of sat yeah. there and chatted for a while. And yeah, that, that moment still stands out as a nice reassuring moment and, and helped push me into like, I, I think I got this. So well, dude, it was, it was really good to see you back on the stage again, you know? Um, like I think we had played a few times with you guys back when you were singing the first time, probably in yep. Worcester, you know, at the Palladium. Uh, I didn't know you then, but I had seen you, and obviously yeah. I'm familiar with your music. Yeah. Um, and then we toured with Killswitch with Howard, of course, many times. Mm -hmm. And then you came back, and I was just like, "This is just really. It was really neat to see you on that stage, and you and you fucking killed it." You know. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Still working on it. <laughs> hey, we all are. Exactly. We all are. All right, brother. Well, best of luck to you. And uh, yeah, I got to check out Paradise City. I've seen some posts in you and Lorenzo, which I think is amazing. <laughs> that's, an, that's another guy. Wow. That, that's, that's a story. Maybe we should get him on here. Lorenzo would be hysterical to have on. I think one. you should. Yeah, I, that just occurred to me. So yeah, congratulations with everything, man. I'm, I'm a fan of everything that you do. And uh, I definitely have a lot of love and uh, respect for you, my friend. So cheers right. to you. Yes, yes, I uh, much love right back to you, you know. It All was right. nice connecting with you as well, Randy. And you should come on again and we should do a whole episode just on our mutual love of punk. Right. Oh, my God, yeah, that'd be awesome. You we know, have I'm down. plenty to talk about there. And um, yeah, any, man. Any point in time. Fuck yeah. Thank All you, right, dude. Thanks so much for a great talk, man. All right. You guys oh, be well. Right. Thank you. All right, brother. Peace. On a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.